Uh, with that, let's pray, and we will we'll, we'll continue here through Matthew. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Lord, we uh, ask that your spirit would guide us this day as we uh, continue our study through the gospel of Matthew. Father, there is so much here, and, and today's uh, account, these words of Christ, uh, are harsh. Um, they, they cut against religion. And Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to hear the words. Father, I pray that you would uh, help us to subject ourselves to them. Lord, it's so easy to slip into uh, religion and believing that our value and our relationship with you is contingent on on our behavior, our being good. Um, Father, I pray that you would help us to see uh, the distinction clearly in our hearts, Lord, between relationship and religion. Guard us, uh, cleanse us from it. Lord, help us to honor you with our lives, with our hearts. Um, may you help us navigate this difficult passage. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen. All right, Matthew chapter 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears in the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that is that sacrificed the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, Hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but the, but the inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Becca, 
whom you murdered between the temple and the altar, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Father, I stand trembling before you. It's so easy for us to approach you sort of lightly, disrespectfully, failing to understand how holy and awesome and mighty you are, how easy it is for us to think that we can sort of control you and to create a system of religion uh, that we play by our own rules in order to make ourselves look good. Father, may we never forget the magnitude of who you are, how holy you are, And as we measure ourselves in comparison to you, we are wretched sinners. We thank you, Lord, that we come before you by grace, not by works. We thank you that you made a way for us to enter into a relationship with you. Father, as we examine this very difficult text, I ask that you um, would help our hearts to truly be transformed by grace, that we would walk in grace, that we would manifest grace to other people, um, that we would have a true understanding of who we are, who you are, and so that we could bring glory to you in our lives. Help us now, we pray. In Christ's good name, amen. All right, I warned you this was a difficult passage. This was one of those, uh, this this has been by some to, to, to claim that it's the most anti-Semitic section in all of the New Testament. Uh, those that make that accusation, they fail to sort of understand that these are all Jews in this. Gentiles aren't even a part of this equation. Uh, so, so when we talk about um, anti-Semitism, th- th- this is all Jews. This is, there's believing Jews and non-believing Jews. And the sooner that we sort of understand that perspective as we read the New Testament things will go uh, way, like just way easier for us. I don't know if that's proper English or not, but um, it works for me right now. Um, this is a difficult passage. This is a long passage. Uh, so I'm going to try to move through quickly and cover it. Um, as I've looked at this passage this week and sort of uh, thought about it, pondered it, um, the, the, the question that comes to my mind is, is, what does Christ hate most? Um, and when I go through Matthew, when I look at the, the Gospels, the people who seem to be on the hot seat the most are, are the religious ones. The, 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 the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the quote-unquote sinners. Jesus seems to love them and they seem to respond. The people that he has the most difficult time with are the religious ones, those that think that they sort of um, control sort of the gateway to the kingdom of God, those that sort of oppress people and distort people. Uh, A couple weeks ago, I shared about my dear friends that were uh, deeply involved and entrenched in uh, sort of a, a false religion. This has been, I think, the closest in my life that I've really... Um, that I've really been able to see the scars of religion and, and how rig- religion can so skew one's thinking and understanding about God. And really, as I interact with them uh, every couple days now, talking about, uh, you know, the mom in the equation, she's a believer. Uh, she has been able to navigate the religion and, and still come come through loving Jesus and and understanding that, th- that they were bad and what they did doesn't reflect on who God is. But then she's dealing with everybody in her family from her kids who are just been ravished by religion. 
and her spouse who wants nothing to do with God because of this religion and therefore all, you know, quote-unquote religions are bad. And so when I see this, this pain, I, I, I feel like God has sort of given me this situation the last few weeks to help me see his heart of, like, this is, this is not the Jesus that's sort of advertised, um, uh, you know, that he's this loving, sweet guy that's just really kind and gentle. Like, this is a forceful passage. Jesus speaks about hell and condemnation. Um, there's, there's a story I discovered this week from a book, Rediscovering the Power that Made Christianity Revolutionary. Um, this pastor writes and he discusses sort of, uh, sort of how it's so easy to slip into religion, um, how it's really easy to kind of fall back into um, believing, well, that we're saved by grace, but then our works sort of sustain us. Um, he shares the story. He says, think about our relationship with Christ like a balloon. <clears throat> there are two ways to keep a balloon afloat. If you fill a balloon with your breath, the only way to keep it in the air is to continually smack it upward. That's how religion keeps you motivated. It repeatedly hits you. Stop doing this. Get busy with that. This is my life as a pastor. People come on Sunday so I can, quote unquote, smack them about something. <laughs> Be more generous. And they do that for a week. Go do missions. And they sign up for a trip. Every week I smack them back into spiritual orbit. No wonder people don't like being around me. But there's another way to keep a balloon afloat. Fill it with helium. Then it floats on its own. No smacking required. Seeing the size and the beauty of God is like the helium that keeps us soaring spiritually. I thought that was really good. Because sometimes when we get in these discussions about works, and I... Uh, you know, I was raised in the Catholic tradition. And so from my Catholic upbringing and my dear family, like a lot of my family who's still Catholic, when we start talking about works as, as resulting from our faith, a lot of times even me talking from grace, like I see how it's so, like it almost seems like it's just semantics. We're arguing about a fine point uh, from their perspective, from my perspective, it's like everything. Grace is everything. Um, if you encounter God in this relationship where he so loves us, he saved us not by our own works, but as a gift. And then you're compelled to serve and to honor him with your life. It, it's like the helium that he describes where externally, if you're trying to do all of these things, it can look identical from the outside. But on the inside, it's a, it's, it's a terrible destructive beast, um, trying to find your worth, trying to find your acceptance from God through how you perform. It's, it's, it's destructive. But for, for us as humans, we, we can't really tell from the outside. But it's everything. And so Jesus is trying to teach us today, or he's really warning them, the situation is there in the temple. We're, we're probably, we, we believe that we're Wednesday before the crucifixion. He'd been challenged by the religious leaders in the court of the Gentiles, this huge complex of the temple, which was 25 acres. They challenged him about his authority. He asked them a question, and they kind of go back and forth, and every which way, Jesus absolutely decimates them. To where finally, in la or two weeks ago, they were done asking him questions. And so they're still in the temple courts. I believe that the religious leaders are still out and about. The first 12 verses that we looked at last week, Jesus is sort of addressing his disciples, warning them of the scribes and Pharisees. And so now Jesus is talking to this, this crowd, but I have a feeling he's like yelling so that all of the scribes and Pharisees can hear his accusation. And so in verse 13, what we read here is, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So a couple of things here. This, is, uh, this section is referred to the sort of the seven woes. Uh, we'll see in verse 14, there might be eight, 
Likely there's seven, but I'll, I'll save that for you there. Um, this is the woe to you, this warning, this condemnation is coming your way. Each time it's the scribes and Pharisees. Um, r- really, the temple was made up of the Pharisees, Sadducees, were sort of the two main leaders. The Sadducees had all of the authority, but they were sort of um, the religious liberals. They were the aristocrats. They were, they were very small in number. The Pharisees represented the people. They were sort of the blue-collar scholars, so to speak. And the scribes were sort of like their, their caddies. They were sort of the, uh, the, the legal experts. Most of them, almost all of them, were, were Pharisees. And that would make sense because the Pharisees um, held to the whole of the Old Testament where the Sadducees only held to the first five books. Uh, the Sadducees didn't take the word of God very seriously. They didn't believe in miracles. They didn't believe in the resurrection where the, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, believed in the supernatural things described in the Bible. And so the, the scribes would sort of tell them how to splice the law, where they could step or not step. Um, and so they are at the target of all of, all of Jesus' things today. I want to say a note because this word hypocrites comes up in almost every one. Hypocrites, hypocrites, hypocrites. I don't, you don't have to raise your hands, but... I'm sure many of you have heard or said, I know I did, that I didn't like going to church because of all the hypocrites there. Um, In our culture, when we use that phrase, I would challenge how hypocrisy is used in our culture today. So often people make the accusation, oh, I don't go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there. And it's like, well, do you go to Starbucks? Because there's a lot of hypocrites there too. But I have no problem going to Starbucks. Like, like I. So, so the hypocrisy that Jesus is mentioning, just to make a point of description or dis- distinction in a descriptive way, just to kind of cover myself there. Uh, <clears throat> hypocrisy is a word that described a mask, like, a, like two-faced that actors would use, that they would put on the show. Um, Hypocrisy is Jesus' meaning is that you have this front, that you make yourself out to be better than everybody else. Um, But then deceptively, you have a duplicit life where your other side is totally carnal. You're not living by anything you say. It's a big facade. That's hypocrisy as Jesus defines. Hypocrisy that most people describe about the church today and that my accusation really had nothing to do about hypocrisy. I wanted nothing to do with God. I didn't want to go to church. And so that was an easy one. Oh, there's a bunch of hypocrites there, so I don't go. There's a difference between ascribing or desiring perfection, desiring holiness, and falling short. Amen? I am a sinner saved by grace. I still fall short of the glory of God. I still have a sinful nature within me. It's a totally different thing to stand here as a, as a pastor of the word of God, trying to teach the word of God faithfully, trying to say, guys, this is the level we're shooting for. But you know what? This week I came like way short or, or we're at, we never meet the mark. That's not hypocrisy. That's just that we're not God. We're human. My buddy's church in Texas, on his website, he has something I really like. Uh, dealing with their commitment to Christ, he says, we strive to be fully present, fully embodied in all that we do, acknowledging, and this is the phrase, everyone is in need of repentance on some level all the time. Everyone is in need of repentance at, on some level all the time. All of us, all of us. There's something you could repent for right now. Um, and so, so that's not hypocrisy. Most Christians I've met is like, no, we all are bad. Like we're innately in our hearts, we're bad people. Like we're sinful. The bent of my heart, if I take the hands off the steering wheel, is to go to sin. It's only by God's grace that he's done a work in me. And the closer I get with him, as I come to know him and his holiness, what I realize over the course of my life is that the sins I'm dealing with today, I realize that they're far more significant according to God and how holy he is. Um, While he's doing a work in my life, there's a long way to go. The hypocrisy that he's dealing with in this section, the scribes and Pharisees, these are the religious leaders. They're scum. Not all of them, but they're sleazy guys that that are using the people to make money 
They're doing terrible things in the name of religion. They have themselves all pious and built up, but they're not who they claim to be. That's totally different. And there are plenty of religions today that are very much like this. So the irony here is that the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought that they were the standard for God's kingdom. They thought that they were the access point. And Jesus tells them in this section, the irony is, is you're not even in the kingdom of God. And those who are like on their way in, you're basically tripping them at the door and keeping them from going in. Um, I think the lesson here is that we want to keep the highest standard on ourselves individually and the lowest standards on other people. And the standard is the word of God, not your preference, not how you feel about certain things. That when I measure my life, I want to hold myself to the very highest standard that the Bible says. Now, when it comes to all of you, while I want you to be all the highest that you can possibly be, my standard is the very, very lowest common denominator. Like, if I'm going to make a correction or say something or bring something to your attention, I need to make sure that it's absolutely in the Word of God, that it's not something that I have deep convictions about, but there are people who have convictions about things like, because I can fill my wallet in my back pocket, there are Christians who have different views on credit cards. Like, I think that there's wisdom from the Scriptures and about being in debt, but you cannot be in debt and use a credit card to pay for your gas and pay off the bill right away, and you could be okay with that. Where another Christian has a complete opposite conviction about that, saying, no, the Bible says you shouldn't be in debt to anybody, and if you use that credit card, even if it's for 24 hours, you're now indebted, so I will only use a debit card. Like, either one, they're deeply convicted from the Word of God, but you can't apply the other one to each other. And there's so many times we take our convictions, which are good, and we project them on other people, even though they're not from the Word of God. Um, I think today's section sort of ties up. For those of you that were around uh, like a couple years ago when we were on the Sermon on the Mount, you don't have to turn there, but I want to read Matthew 5.20 to you. The Sermon on the Mount has a very different feel. And in Matthew 5.20, Jesus says to the crowds, he says, for I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so as he said that, the people on the Mount of Beatitudes, as they're listening, they're like, how is that possible to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Because they are blameless according to the law from their perspective. And then Jesus goes on to say a bunch of things. Remember, he says, but I say unto you, you've heard it said, you shall not murder your brother. But I say to you, speaking from his own authority, he says, if you have hate towards your brother, you've committed murder in your heart. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look with lust upon a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. And we see that what Jesus shows is that the actual heart of the law far exceeds the standard of of the Pharisees and scribes. As we see from Galatians, as we see from Jesus' teaching, that the whole purpose of the law was never intended to teach us how we could earn our way into heaven. It was intended to show us that we cannot, by our own strength, by our own merit, by our own resolve, we cannot make our way into heaven. It's a school teacher, Galatians says. It's a, it, it leads us to Christ, the one whom can. He can't, the one who can. Okay. Moving along here, verse 14. Okay, what I'm going to say about verse 14. Some of you, I'm not going to make you raise your hands. If you're using the NIV, ESV, a bunch of really good translations, you go from verse 13 to verse 15. Don't let this throw you for a loop. There'll be a footnote to you explaining MSS. I almost wanted to say something here. This is, this is one of those things where I never know how much to say. Um, I've talked about this enough uh, or a lot, so I hope that there's some standard. Um, uh, like a baseline from the majority of people. So with the Old Testament, you won't encounter things like this. The Old Old Testament, how it was recorded, the Hebrew Scriptures, was very different than the New Testament. The Old Testament, last week I thank God for the scribes. They would write everything out word for word. If there was a, a, a minor detail, they would destroy the whole text and they would start over. They would... They would sort of preserve the actual writings. And when the writings began to deteriorate, they would absolutely destroy them. 
and they would create new ones. Um, For many years, following the death of Christ, especially into the modern era, people would criticize, well, how do we know that the Old Testament we have is reliable? How do we know that it was transmitted in a way where it remained pure? This was a, a, a valid question, valid concern, and in uh, uh, you know, a handful of years ago, in the 60s, I believe, I always get the dates a little bit backwards in my head, but I think it was 1967, I could be, maybe it was 47, I'm always off, but within 50 years, 47 to 67, I think it was 47 that Israel became a state and 67 when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, but they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and in the cave of the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found from the zealots tucked away there, they had a bunch of writings from before Christ, unheard of. And there they had most of the Old Testament, the whole of Isaiah. And as they went through, they realized that the text that we have in the Old Testament is is 99.999 to infinite pure. Like it's word for word, period for period, with, with very, very minor details. Now, when we come to the New Testament, the New Testament was handled very differently. The New Testament was, was writings where the apostles wrote inspired by the Spirit sent to a church or a group of people. The letter was passed around, and they read it orally to the people. Then a scribe who is not like me doing scribal work for you, I would be terrible doing scribal work, but these guys were amazing. And so the scribe would get the letter, he would then get a fresh piece of paper, and he would copy word for word of the original. Then the original would move on to the next church. Then they would take the copy, and then they would make a bunch of copies of the copy, and they would transmit it, and they would, they would circulate it around in their areas. This went on for years and years and years and years. Very different method. Now, as you fast forward through time, where we are today, we would love to have the originals of both. We don't have the originals. But they can date the manuscripts that we have that are in museums all over. It's in your footnotes, you'll see MSS. Those are manuscripts. And scholars with really thick glasses examine the various manuscripts, and they say, this is authentic. We can go back to like, I mean, there's more authentication on the New Testament than there is uh, from George Washington, our first president. I mean, it's, it's overwhelming, the, the, the evidence that they have. And so they go through and they say, oh, this is accurate, this is accurate. Um, Many years ago, they discovered where where, where this sort of problem, verse 14, what happened is, is they discovered many years ago a cache in Egypt um, because it was the biggest library in the world that was destroyed. Then they found underground like manuscripts that were preserved because of the dryness of the air, the desert conditions. It preserved um, many of the text. And because of how it was preserved, They were able to date it so it was like within 30, 40, 50, 60 years of the original writing. Um, There were less of them uh, numbers-wise. That's why they're referred to as the minority text is because there's less of them. But they are older. And so then when they come to a problem like verse 14, this is a problem because the ones that are older, this verse is in here. And before you start, the critics are going, aha, I knew you couldn't trust the Bible. This this really isn't a problem. This verse, if you go to Mark 1240 and Luke 2047, I'm not going to go there. You can do that on your own time. Very same section of scripture, very same setting. Mark and Luke both record that Jesus said what he says here in this very setting. Matthew, for whatever reason, likely didn't say it, didn't record it, but that doesn't mean that Jesus said it. If you go to a crime scene and an officer will start interviewing various people that witness things, you take 10 people, one account, you'll get 10 different stories and they sort of align them all up. One person leaves something out, that doesn't mean that what the other person said didn't happen. It just means that he didn't say it for whatever reason. And so we don't need to get wrapped up around the axle Uh, The Bible knowledge commentary on this says some Greek Greek manuscripts omit this verse. It may have been added because of Mark 20 and Luke 20, 47. If it's authentic here, and it could be, the the number of woes is eight. So that's it, okay? I probably said more than I should, but there's about three of you that probably care about how did we get our Bible. And so you're welcome Um, (laughs) for you three. Um, 
So what it says, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. So the issue is, these guys are going into widows' houses. They're pillaging the widows. They're doing terrible things to the widows. But as a pretense, they're doing these big lofty prayers in the King James Version, making themselves out to be super uh, spiritual. But they're hypocrites. I'll never forget a few years ago. Well, it's been the years my, it's get stuck in history. It was, 19, or it was 2001. Uh, between January and June, I was deployed in the Middle East. There was a long section before things started happening for us, um, where we were just hanging out in Bahrain, and there was a bowling alley on base. And so what we did for entertainment is we would go to the bowling alley, and we would basically kill it at the lanes. And we sort of all developed nicknames. My nickname during this era became the Holy Roller. (laughs) And it was super funny, and it was in jest. But then I remember at some point kind of pulling my buddy aside. I'm like, hey, like, why do you guys call me the Holy Roller? He's like, well, you're a Christian. And I'm like, do you guys think I'm being, like, religious and, like, condemning you? are like, no, you just are religious. You're a Christian, so we're holy roller fits. And it's like, oh, okay, like, I, you know. And, and it was really funny, but I think that, that they knew me as a Christian. And it's really easy to slip into sort of the, this duplicit character. And I would suggest that even before it really even happens, like you could be walking with the Lord, great. The world is going to see you as a hypocrite. They're going to see you as, as this way. And so I think what he's, like the warning here is they had become, the, you know, the quote unquote holier than thou. And so we must never forget where we can. That's why I think Amazing Grace is such a powerful song and has survived over the centuries. Because it's all about amazing grace. We are just sinners saved by grace. And if you're saved, you're still a sinner saved by grace. You're not, it doesn't mean that you're saved and now you're not a sinner. You're still a sinner, but you're one whom is saved. Okay, moving on. Verse 15, I took more time there. Then verse 15, he goes on to this woe. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on the sea and land to make a proselyte. One proselyte, that's a conversion. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Ouch. Especially for the guy that's flying to Africa tomorrow. Like kind of, we support these missionaries. He says, you go out, you will travel halfway around the world to, to, to tell somebody about God. But when you're done doing it, they actually stand twice as condemned because you've entrenched them in your own religion. You haven't pointed them to Christ. This is uh, very much like verse 13, the warning there, but with stronger verbiage. I, um, I would say here that this lesson is fascinating to me. Um, this is one of those things that takes thoughtfulness, prayer, uh, evaluating yourself, your practice, the things that you do. Um, I'm trying to figure out how to articulate this. Josh and I have Josh Manning, who was our missionary in Mongolia, who is now reaching Native Americans and, and, and equipping Native Americans in Flagstaff, Arizona. If you really want to have a conversation on the subject, ask him about it, and he will go, he'll spend days with you. Um, so missionaries, which we all are, if you live in Valley Center, we're missionaries here in Valley Center. Um, it's harder to sort of evaluate yourself in a culture that's your own home. But when you leave your culture and you go to a different culture and place, you realize that some of your quote-unquote Christianity is actually like Americanism that you're trying to sort of pitch on another person. And so missionaries in some respect have done very well at understanding how this works and at times have done very poorly um, Going into a, you know, there's, if you, I encourage you guys to read missionary biographies. Um, I, I think, like, almost all of the ones that we know about, they went into a culture and say, you know what? Uh, you know, the people in China don't dress like Americans. They don't wear a suit and tie. They dress like this. So I'm going to dress like this. And so the one lady, I think it was Amy Carmichael, one of the books that we recently read, she, uh, she put on the Chinese 
garb, and she started ministering to the Chinese, and was very successful, and all of the American, I mean, no, the, the English missionaries were upset because they, if you carry on with this, you're going to really interrupt our tea time. And not for golfing for you Skyline folks, but we're talking about tea like that. Uh, um, um, so this is something missional. We want to reach people for, for the gospel, how we dress, the type of music we listen to. Uh, th- these are all uh, cultural implications. We need to truly, as we reach our culture, uh, how, how do we reach our culture and distinguish between Christian culture and what does the Bible say in American culture? Like, is there anything that says you can't go to church in shorts and flip-flops or preach in that? Like, there's nothing in the Bible that says that. This is a, a, a cultural thing, how we dress I would say that the Bible talks about like appropriateness. So there's some, like in one culture that might mean one thing and another culture, another thing. I've probably said too much already, but it's something for us to say. There's a great book out there that I read like last year, I think, and it's called Misinterpreting Scripture Through Western Eyes. And it's these two missionaries that talk about what they went through being overseas and sort of exposing um, things that they thought were biblical, but in another culture, they realized that it was just their Americanness, like being American, sort of bleeding into how they read the text. Okay, we'll get to the next woe. We're introduced to a new term that carries out blind guides, we'll see. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold in the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that sacrificed the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sacrifices the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Okay, that was a long to read there. I, um, we read this and you might feel a little disconnected. What's he talking about? What's happening? Remember the setting there at the temple. The temple was a place of sacrifice. Um, this is one of those things where we're sort of contextually removed from what was going on. They would understand what was happening there. I want to break it down for you so that you can understand. Um, you, you know, this, the, like when you're in the kids in the school ground and I say, just so you guys can see, I'm crossing my fingers. Hey, Larry, I'll pick you up today at 1 o'clock. I'll be happy to do that. Larry goes to the airport. It's 1 o'clock. Where's Gunner? He calls you up. Hey, Gunner, where are you at? I thought you were coming. I was like, oh, man, Larry, my fingers are crossed off my back. I don't have to pick you up. I was just... Like, so, so they had a little system. If, they, if they, sw- they could swear in the temple, make it sound like that they're swearing to God and making an oath. But because their fingers were crossed behind their back, but it was how, the little splicing it, they actually were not obligated to fulfill what they said. And, and Jesus is challenging them. He says this back in Matthew chapter 5, 33 through 37. You don't have to go there. But at the Sermon of the Mount, he basically says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. If you, see, if you tell somebody, yes, you'll do it, there's no reason as a Christian for a contract. You say yes, you mean it. If you say no, you mean it. You don't need all of these loopholes in legal, but, you know, we have attorneys and laws and because people are not trustworthy. But Jesus says, if you want to be holy, let your yes be yes and your no be no, period. And so he's challenging them on this. You go into the temple, you swear before God, and you think you have some loophole when you swear you're actually... you've sworn before God whether you like it or not. Uh, Moving on from there to verse 23, where we have time. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Uh, But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. This is a beautiful word picture. How I, I don't know. This is, I'm almost tempted to raise hands, but I know better that, than to do that. Um, I'll just talk for myself. 
If I have a cup of something and something flies in it, I'm okay with just like swooshing it out there. I'm even okay sometimes with getting a little extra protein if it gets it out there. Like I'm not really <laughs> bothered by it. But he's kind of saying like you have a cup of something and, and you'll, you'll, you'll take the detail to get the gnat out of there. But there's like a rat in the bottom of the cup and you'll just drink the rat with going like, well, I got that gnat out of there, but no problem drinking the rat. But he says camel, which is even more hilarious. Like he, he uses this, this really extreme picture to, to show their hypocrisy. They would, when it came to tithing, they had, if they had a, if they had a, a, an herb plant, they would take 10% off of that plant and they would make the offering. They would do all of the finer details in the law but they would ignore the big things. And the big things that Jesus says that they ignored are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You want to know what God cares about? He cares about justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Don't worry about all these little details, but they're so, and he says these details are great. He says, you're so wrapped up in the details that the main things you miss. I love Alistair Begg. One of the things he says, and he says it a lot, is the main things are the plain things, and the plain things are the main things in Scripture. And so often we get sort of caught up in the details, and we miss the big picture of what's trying to be communicated. Uh, there's a funny uh, illustration that's used. I don't, I don't think it's a true story, but it could be. Who knows? Uh, the story goes like this. A priest was coming back to his rectory one evening, in the dark, when he was accosted by a robber who pulled a gun on him and demanded your money or your life. As the preach reached his hand into his coat pocket, the, ro- the robber saw his Roman collar and said, I see that you're a priest. Never mind, you can go. The priest, surprised at this unexpected show of piety, tried to reciprocate by offering the robber a candy bar that he remembered was in his pocket. The robber replied, No, thank you, Father. I don't eat candy during Lent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's a funny story, but there's so many times where as Christian, we get dogmatic about one point that's really like a sub-issue that's not important, and we fail to miss the more obvious. I turn my page, or maybe I missed something. Oh, yeah, there's more. Verse 25 through 28. Another, we'll move on to the next one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become a clean, may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear to be beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So there's this picture. You have this cup that's pretty on the outside, but inside it's like full of mold and nasty. And then there's this picture which standing on the temple, if you look across the temple today, what do you see? You see the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives, when you see pictures of Israel, there's that beautiful white mountainside. It's beautiful, breathtaking. And people there for the first time, if they don't know, they're like, what is that? Those are beautiful little places. It's like, those are graves. It's like the dead people are there just rotting away to the bones. So it's like, oh, that's kind of kind of changes everything when you look at it that way. And he says, this is what you are. I don't know where you guys sort of grew up in your faith. But going from the Catholic Church to Protestant circles and sort of learning the ropes as a guy who wanted to be a chameleon, like I, I really struggled early on because I think I struggled with a lot of this with my Catholic background. I thought if you wanted to be a Christian, you needed to look and act and, 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 and be a certain way. And I was always performance-driven just in, in my life, um, in the, the career and the vocation that I was in. It was all about sort of externals and performance. And so when I was a young Christian sort of trying to put on the show that, yeah, I'm okay, me and Jesus are tight, and I, like, I, I couldn't expose the true things I was struggling with for fear that I would be failing in this Christian life that I was supposed to be doing. I was on this run with a buddy of mine, and so he was a Christian, and I was like brand new Christian. He was way farther along than I was, and we're jogging down Coronado, and all of a sudden, he starts talking to me about this struggle that he had, uh, struggling with... Um, 
his purity, his, his mental thought life, life, lust, and what it led him into do. And I was sort of like, I, I was gasping because I was running, but I was also sort of like gasping internally, like, I can't believe this guy, he's talking about things that you shouldn't be talking about, and yet he is fully just exposing himself to me and his struggles. And I was absolutely blown away. Because my mind of what a good Christian was supposed to be, you weren't supposed to be dealing with all that. You were supposed to have a nice little package and everything was supposed to be going well. And when you go to church on Sundays, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you very much. I'm going to go home. Even though you just had the, the worst fight you've ever had with your wife and I wasn't married at the time or whatever it is that you're going through leading up to here, you get into church and everything's perfect. Everything's fine. And we just sort of fake it. And I thought that's how it was supposed to be. And Jesus, I think, is making the point like, it's okay not to be okay. This shouldn't be a place where we have to fake things. Like, we're here to sort of grow closer to Christ, grow closer to one another. My time in the SEAL teams has affected me profoundly when it comes to church. In the, in the teams, when, you're, when you are encounter a firefight and you're able to break from the firefight to a sort of a, a pseudo-safe place. Uh, you're still in the midst of the battle, but you have to keep moving. But there's a quick, hey, are you shot? Do we have everybody? And I know I've shared this a bunch of times, but it, it just really, it, it's how I feel about things. Um, but you, you, you come into the circle, and, the, and, and the, the officer and the radio man will be in the center. Everybody has a perimeter. And the officer goes from guy to guy, hey, are you okay? And the guy's like, I'm okay. I have four, four magazines left. Guy goes, hey, I'm, I'm okay, or I'm shot, but I'm okay, I can keep fighting. I only have one magazine left. And so then the officer goes, okay, Johnny has four magazines. He's out of ammo. I'm taking two of your magazines to give the ammo. There's a, there's a redistribution, and then we continue to fight. The Bible talks about the Christian life as being warfare. This isn't the place to come and to act like you got it all together. This is the place where we come. We need to be fed. We need the fellowship no, I'm not doing okay right now. I'm having a terrible week. The last two weeks, terrible week. Anna's grandpa died. We were really struggling. Like some people would say, oh, you come up here and just act like you're okay. Don't share about your own crisis and what you're going on. You're here to teach. No, that's not my philosophy. My philosophy is I'm just a guy going through the word and I'm gonna, when I'm hurting, I'm going to share with you when I'm hurting. And I know that there are people who are, who are hurting today. And so it's okay not to be okay. And we want this to be a place where somebody's not okay, that we come around them, we love them, we pray for them, we help them if we can. Then we come to verse 29. Okay, I'm I'm way out of breath. This is a long passage. (laughs) Bunch of woes coming. Okay, what do you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites? You build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, uh, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come on this generation. Yeah. (laughs) Let me catch my breath. They had a long history of killing God's prophets. The prophets would rise up, God's spokesmen. They would rise up, they would kill the prophet. They would then bury the prophet, and then they would worship his grave. And Jesus basically says, your fathers, you acknowledge, killed all of these prophets. You worship these prophets. You acknowledge that it was your granddaddies and grandfathers and great-grandpas who did this. So the blood that was on their head is on your head. 
And you say that you wouldn't do what they did. Like we say, oh, if only I lived during Jesus' time, I wouldn't have rejected him for so many years of my life. It's absolutely not true. They sit there and say, we wouldn't do this. And what's, what the irony here is who is speaking? It's Christ, the Messiah. And what's going to happen to him within hours? Within hours, they're going to arrest him. They're going to scourge him. As Pontius recognizes that he has an innocent man, they're screaming out, may his blood be on our heads and our children's heads. Crucify him over and over and over again. Jesus is challenging them boldly for their hypocrisy. Back in Matthew chapter 12, 14, showing their religion, Jesus heals a guy on the Sabbath with a withered hand. And they say, you broke our Sabbath rules. And they went and they began to plot his execution. This is the hypocrisy of religion. It's a warning to us. Before we start throwing stones at the Pharisees and scribes, we need to examine our own hearts and our own religion and get back to the, 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 the core truth that we're just sinners saved by grace. And he ends with his last words that he would say to the, to the crowds, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is Jesus' last words to the multitudes. He loved them, and they rejected him. He loves us. May we not reject him. It's all about relationship, not religion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we come before you based on grace, based on your kindness, based on the fact that you are the one who initiated with us. You are the one who pursued us. You are the one who sought after us. You are the one who knew us before we were created. We're told that Christ died on the cross while we were yet sinners. Father, I thank you that your gift is complete, that we bring nothing to the table. We thank you, Lord, as we sang earlier today, broken vessels, that you set your treasure in broken vessels, that you place Christ in our hearts after we respond to him. Father, I pray that as we live our lives, Lord, that you would, um, that there are people here who haven't come to a place where they've trusted in Christ for salvation, that you would help connect the dots for them, that they could just simply believe. For those of us who have trusted, Lord, I pray that you would expose uh, legalism in our hearts, expose areas where we're like the Pharisees. Father, free us from the burden of religion. May we truly experience grace. May we just be transformed by your spirit. We thank you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.